welcome. Amen. Appreciate, I always appreciate the worship team and no matter who's up there, uh, it's good to come together, just reset ourselves, um, orient ourselves, turn our eyes to Jesus, look to the hills where our help comes from. Um, there's a lot of things you can look at in the world today, and you can come to the conclusion that you need help. So it's good to come to a place where you look to the source of your help. You look to the hills. You, look, you lift your eyes up to see where your help comes from. So we're going to begin uh, a new series today. We're going to be looking at the book of James. Uh, if you're a guest today, we have children's ministry in the back. We have a nursery. We have uh, classes for elementary age kids. If you go back through these doors, someone will show you where to go. If you have someone with you who'd like, you'd like to take back there. Uh, if you're a guest, too, we welcome you. We're glad you're here with us. Um, we're going to study God's Word. We're going to read God's Word. We're going to start with the uh, belief that it is God-breathed, that it is truth, that it is from, uh, it's from God. It's a message to us. And I think it's timely that we're studying the book of James, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why I think that. Um, but I think uh, uh, James is, I see it as a, a prophylactic. I don't know if you know what that, it's a preventative. I think it's something that we can, we can consume today to strengthen us uh, and, and help us to prevent uh, falling away from the faith, to prevent um, uh Folding and crumbling in times of trials is something that we can look at and examine also that we are in the faith. You know, Scripture tells us to examine ourselves. You read throughout Scripture, um, and in 2 Corinthians 13, for example, uh, Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves. Uh, the psalmist often asked God to test them or to search them or to know them. Psalm 139 especially, search me, O God, know me, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Um, and so I would think it would be a good thing if we would come together as we look at this book of James and corporately and individually, we test ourselves. We're going to look at the scripture and we want to see if our lives line up to it. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background before we get into it. I'd like to pray first, actually. I need uh, God's help to do this. I don't want to operate in my own strength or abilities. Uh, so, Lord, we ask you to teach us. We ask you to encourage us. We ask you to strengthen us. Lord, especially, just like we're going to read today, we ask for wisdom. We ask for wisdom. We're going to learn about trials and the necessity of wisdom. And so, as we look at the trials of life, we're or we prepare for trials, we ask for wisdom from you, God, and we believe that you'll give it to us. You'll show us a way that we should walk in and help us not to waver, not to ask for wisdom, not to ask for insight, to receive it, and then at the last minute uh, fold or shrink back or become scared or, or doubt in our minds and, and choose a path that's of our own design or of the world's design. So as we look at your word, God, we need your spirit to strengthen us. We need your spirit to train us, to teach us, uh, 
And we ask that you would do that, that you would come and meet with us and teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so the book of James, um, I, you know, it's, I enjoy the book of James, and it seems like it's a book when people become um, new believers. It's one that they maybe gravitate towards or are led towards. It's a very practical book. It's an epistle, meaning it's a letter because of the first words, the first verse. Uh, it's addressed as like a letter, but then it's really, it's more in line with wisdom literature, like the Proverbs, for example. Or it has similarities to the Sermon on the Mount. It begins by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Uh, it's very interesting. I find it interesting. You can dive into it more. I won't be exhaustive at, at this point. But I do want to give you some biography. James, the author here, um, is the brother, half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was born... Of a virgin, uh, we have the Immaculate Conception. Jesus was born to Mary, uh, immaculately and miraculously. But then Mary did marry Joseph, and she had biological children. So James would be considered a half-brother of Jesus. And in Jesus' life, we see that they came to him when he was teaching, um, and they were trying to, you know, just kind of quietly gather him up, bring him back home, you know, kind of talk some sense into him. They didn't really believe. Uh, in the, the earthly ministry of Jesus, they didn't really believe. They were, uh, they were good Jews, but they were unbelieving in the terms of the message of Christ. They didn't believe in Jesus yet, uh, which is interesting. But when we read the book of James, we're going to see that he's saturated in the teachings of Jesus. The, especially the Sermon on the Mount shines through. We studied the Sermon on the Mount recently. It shines through. It's, it's evident that James was a student of the words of Jesus. And I, I think about that, and I take hope because, you know, James was around the teaching, but he wasn't believing the teaching. But when he became a believer, that, that former instruction, those words he heard, those seeds bore fruit. They brought forth fruit. And so some of you may have someone in your life that you're bringing or dragging to teaching. You're, you're taking them to Jesus. You're sharing the words of Jesus, and they're not yet believing, but it's not futile or worthless. So James, we see all throughout his book the, the words of Jesus. And Jesus appeared to James. If you look in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, this gives us some insight. James began believing at some point. Uh, let's see here. In verse 3, Paul's writing, he says, this is the gospel, by the way, the good news of Jesus. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Jesus made a special resurrection appearance to James before his ascension. He made an appearance to James and, and had a special meeting. And James is a, a believer, and he quickly becomes established as a leader. He's considered the leader of the church of Jerusalem. When uh, in Galatians 2, for example... 
Paul had been on his missionary journeys. He brings back Barnabas and Titus. We have Gentiles believing when previously there were only Jews believing. And they have a council at Jerusalem. They sort these things out. And James is considered the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul, or Peter goes out as an apostle to the circumcised, right? Um, but it seems that he even kind of reports in his subordinate to James. James is a leader and esteemed. If you look in Galatians 2, we get some insight uh, into that meeting. Paul's writing his letter to the Galatians, and um, it gives us an insight into the meeting, and it also gives us an insight into James's character. Uh, let's see. Verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, okay? Uh, and you can, you can read this as more... Uh, in the very beginning of chapter 2, he says, After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and he took Titus along. And he had a private meeting with those esteemed as leaders. And he uses that word esteemed. And, and James was a very esteemed leader. He was held in high regard by many of the believers, the people in his community. And Paul seems to be referencing that. He talks about, uh, in verse 6, he says, As for those who are held in high esteem... So he's referencing that. He's saying these people are held in very high esteem. They're put up, uh, they're held in high regard. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism, which is interesting because Paul, uh, Paul mentions favoritism. It's echoed in James's letter, which we're going to see coming up. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, there he is, Barnabas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me, the right hand, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. So he's name-dropping, in essence, James uh, as part of uh, you know, his bona fides. He's saying, I met with these people. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. They acknowledged the grace that was given to me. They were held in high esteem. He calls James a pillar of the church, and this is who James is. And I love this note. It's almost like uh, it's kind of just something he adds here. Uh, they agree that we should go to the Gentiles and they do the circumcised. In verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And so this reveals James's heart. They asked, okay, we line up with your message. We see the grace that you're doing. We're, we're putting our stamp of approval on your ministry. But the one thing we want you to do is to remember the poor. And this was a hallmark of the first century church. There, were no one, there was no one among them who was needy. There was no one among them who were needy. They had people that, that came to believe. Those that had property sold them. They distributed it. The widows came. The, the poor came. And, and there was a leveling. There was a great leveling. The, the lowly were, were esteemed. They were brought up. And the poor voluntarily humbled themselves to, to help that happen. And this is going to be referenced in our, our verses that we get to. I know this is kind of a long introduction. But I love that James says, remember the poor. And Paul says, it was the very thing that I was eager to do. And I want us to look at uh, as part of our testing, we need to evaluate, is this a hallmark of harvest? 
Is it a hallmark of the church today um, in our community? Is it a hallmark of the church in America? Is it a hallmark of the church globally? This is the church that Jesus established. This is one of the defining characteristics that they cared for the poor. And so that's one of the challenges we can look. We can test ourselves. We can examine ourselves. And if we don't line up with Scripture, we need to uh, alter our lives. And we probably need to alter our beliefs because we have misplaced beliefs. We may have idolatry. We may have things going on in our lives that uh, aren't correct that God wants to address. Now I want to say our deeds aren't our salvation. Faith comes through hearing. It comes from hearing the word of God. So this is who James was. This, was. this is a little bit of his biography. There were all kinds of legends about him. They said his knees were like a camel's knees because he prayed so much. And, uh, you know, some things that are, that are extra biblical that we, don't, we can't verify. There were uh, almost legends grew out of, of who he was as a leader. And um, if you read the book of, of James, uh, one of the things I like to do when I spend time with people or I get to know people, uh, first of all, one of the first questions I ask someone, uh, my wife was actually a witness to this. I did this multiple times this week. I had some young men that were working with me. And one of the first questions I would ask is, uh, do you like to read? And what books have you read recently? Or what's your favorite book? I like to know uh, a sor- the sources of influence upon someone, and it helps me to understand who they are or their character. And you can kind of, it's a fun game to play as you get to know somebody. I kind of try to predict, you know, what, what books have had an influence on their life, or what TV series, or what movies have they watched, or what, what has been, in, what teachers, you know, what, what uh, whatever personalities have had an influence on their life by the words that they say, the things that they do, the beliefs that they have. I kind of try to guess and see who has influenced them, whether it's, uh, sometimes I can tell whether it's somebody locally, you know, who has mentored them or been a part of their lives or in their friend group or uh, someone on a larger scale, you know, who's influenced them, an author, uh, for example, or, or a teacher or a movement within uh, the church if they're Christians, you know. It's a fun thing to do. And so when I look at James, I want to know what are the sources. He's, he's giving us wisdom, but what are the sources of James' wisdom? And obviously, the Holy Spirit is a source of wisdom from Scripture. But James appears to be saturated in both the Proverbs, the Jewish wisdom literature, and the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus. It's, it shines through. It becomes obvious. And we'll point that out as we study this book. Those are the sources of his wisdom, and they're trustworthy. You know, just in the opening of the book of James, uh, I love that he calls himself, you know, he could say, I'm the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I was the leader of the Jewish council. I'm a pillar of, of the Christian community. I'm a, a half-brother of Jesus Christ. And he identifies himself from the very beginning. He says, I'm a servant. A servant. And to me, I think maybe he's recalling, he's been influenced by the teachings of Jesus. He said, woe to you Pharisees. They love to be addressed by titles. They love to be recognized as teachers. They love to be recognized as influential. They love to be greeted in the marketplace. Jesus also said, when you go to a banquet or you go to a dinner, you don't take the seat of honor. You don't take the high seat. You put yourself in the low position. 
If you're putting yourself in the high seat and someone of more honor comes in, they're going to ask you to move down. But if you put yourself in the low seat, the, the master of the banquet will come and he'll say, don't sit here, he'll move you up, and then you receive honor. He's, he's influenced, I see, by the teachings of Jesus. He's taking the low place. He calls himself a servant. And what's interesting here, he says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people say uh, maybe they just say it as a, a point of observation or it's been said maybe as a, a point of criticism that James doesn't really, the book of James doesn't really have theology. And, and you would say he doesn't expressly teach uh, theology in the way that a book of Romans does. He's very practical. He's addressing character traits, and, and he's really addressing uh, behaviors. But James here, he says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he lists two people. Now, I think James probably heard the teachings of Jesus and said, you can't have two masters, right? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. And James is a servant, and he lists two names, okay? So I think when we talk, when they say James doesn't have theology, I think there's theology, but it's, it's hidden. It's implied, um, and James is saying he's dealing with the obvious. He's addressing Christians. Later on in James 2.19, he says, uh, you say that you believe uh, in one God. Well, good, even the demons say that and shudder, right? He's addressing that there's one God. James is a Jew. He would know the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You know, the Lord is one. That would be something he heard every day of his life, that God is one. And so here, James, he knows you can't have two masters. He knows that God is one. You can't serve two masters. He's giving us theology that Jesus, he's, this is theology of the Trinity, that Jesus and the Father are one. And it's, it's here in the very, opening, uh, the very opening address. And so I've given you a little bit of James's biography. I've given you a little bit of his sources. And, and James identifies as a servant. He calls himself a servant, a doulos. He has no rights or claim to his own life. And this is the, the position that we ought to take. This should be the attitude and the title that we should strive to take on. So let's test ourselves. Examine your life. Are you aspiring? Are you striving to a title, to a position, to uh, uh, a degree? Are you trying to get letters after your name or letters in front of your name? Are you trying to get a position or a title? And that's, as, that's not in itself evil. Yet our primary identity ought to be as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to get into the, the teachings of the book of James. And uh, I said I consider it a preventative or a prophylactic Um. We're going to look at verse 2. And he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Some translations, I, I've taught on this several times. This is something that I, I know I've talked about a lot, so it's like, well, here it is again. If you've heard me say it over and over. 
Uh, some translations say, count it all joy. Count it all joy. You're doing some, some math here, some figuring, some arithmetic. When you add up, when you do the correct math, when you face a trial, when you add up the numbers, when you enter a trial, the conclusion that you should come to is joy. Okay, you might be doing some counting. If you're a homemaker, uh, if you're running a household, you're probably doing some counting today. You go to Walmart, uh, you do some counting. I'm sure James didn't count up. He didn't buy bacon. Uh, he lived as a kosher Jew, but, you know, I try to buy, a, I'm going to have to go down to one pack of bacon a month, I think, you know. Like, I get a little pack of bacon, and it, it is one day. It lasts my family one day. Uh, you know, it's gone up significantly in price. I bought two of those, and it was gone in two days. You know, it was about $16. You count up at the gas pump. Uh, they were predicting, you know, I don't want to cause fear, okay? That's the, not what I'm trying to do. Um, you count, they say, uh, you know, eggs could cost a dollar each. You could be paying $12 a dozen for eggs. I don't know why that is. Get you some backyard chickens. I know the city, I thought it was weird, the city, I'm not going to get on it, but they put in an ordinance that you can't have chickens in your backyard. And they go, we're, we're in like a, kind of on the, on the verge of a situation. Uh, you know, if people need chickens in their backyards, they need eggs to feed their family. I, we might have to do some, uh, oh, uh, whatever. Anyway. You might be doing some counting. You're adding up your bills. You're looking at your utility bills. We're doing counting, and when we do that counting, absent of an eternal perspective, the, the place that we land is far from joy. It's far from joy. Uh, but James says, count it pure joy. When you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Right? The end result is our steadfastness. You know, trials, I find this very interesting, and this is important to you. This is important to us. Trials do not produce faith. Okay? Trials don't produce faith. They test faith. They see if you already have it. Now, you may come to faith out of desperation in the middle of a trial, but a trial doesn't really test your faith, or it doesn't really produce faith. It tests your faith, and it produces perseverance. And so I wish that we could leave here with joy today. Uh, it, by all accounts, it appears that we have there's trials on the horizon, would you say? We're in the midst of trials, and it appears that they're not letting up. There's trials on the horizon. But I want to tell you that there can be joy because of those trials. There's going to be a testing that comes. There's going to be a development, a production of steadfastness. There's going to be something that God's going to do through this that will come out of it. That if you could see the other side, you would have all joy or pure joy. Don't be fearful today. Don't be fearful today. Fear is the opposite of faith, would you say? 
We can look at the situation. We can look at the trial. We can, uh, we can measure it. We can account for it. We can count it up. But when we count that up, it pales into comparison to the, the glory that's to be revealed and the resources of God our Father. And when our faith is tested, we'll have perseverance and God will have glory. So I want you to count it joy. That doesn't mean... Um, and it says, uh, it doesn't mean that we just uh, ignorantly or blindly walk into trials. We can make preparation. We need to be wise as serpents, that's from Jesus, innocent as doves. But we don't have to be afraid, brothers and sisters. When we add it up correctly, that's how we know. That's another way to test ourselves. When we look at situations that we're facing, and all we come away with is fear, we're not, we're not counting it correctly. We're not looking at it rightly. Pure joy. Our character will be developed. We'll develop steadfastness. And it says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So our character, the development of our character through trials is of infinitely more value then the cost it will take, the toll it will take on us to persevere through those trials. What you get on the other side is infinitely more valuable than what it costs you to go through. And so I want you to have hope. God can, will do things and can do things and is going to do things in the trials that we face. Now here's the key. We have to let perseverance do its work. We have to stay strong. We have to remain steadfast. We have to examine ourselves. Do we have faith? We want to make sure we have faith before the trial. We don't want to find out in the middle of it that we don't and fold. Verse 5 gives us a lot of hope. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Uh, I have, I have a, a Bible, a version of the Bible here where I have the New International Version and the Amplified Bible side by side. They're parallel here. And in verse 5 in the, in the Amplified Bible, it says, If any of you is deficient in wisdom, let him ask of the giving God. That's what it calls God. The giving God who gives to everyone liberally. God is a giving God. We sang, you give and take away. But ultimately, yes, God, Job said that. God does that. He has that uh, privilege. He has that right. But ultimately, God is a giving God. He's primarily and ultimately a giving God. I want to tell you, you may be looking at the trials that you're facing, and you may come to this point where you ask God for wisdom, and God gives God will give you wisdom. And here's something I've seen people do. And you don't want to be this person. They face a trial. They cry out to God. They ask for wisdom. They're shown a clear path. And then when it gets a little bit harder, they abandon God's wisdom. And they adopt their own wisdom. They adopt worldly wisdom. They, they listen to the enemy. They listen to fear, and they abandon the instruction that the Lord's given them. 
I've seen people do this. It's heartbreaking. They begin, they look at a trial, they see it's coming, they're in the thick of it. You guys know, anybody ever watch The Backyard again? They used to sing a song, Into the Thick of It. That's like a cartoon or whatever. Anyway, they're in the thick of it. They ask for wisdom. And just the thick of it gets a little bit thicker. And they abandon the wisdom that God's given them. James says, you don't want to be that person. But when you, belie- when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to set out seeking God, asking His wisdom, and then just backing out. Just turning, turning to another source. God is a giving God. He's the giving God who gives. You know, sometimes my kids come to me and they just, uh, my kids are blessed. They, they're definitely blessed, but um, they just, sometimes they're just, they just keep asking, you know. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Like, my kids just, you give them, they get something, and then it takes about a minute, and they want something else and something more. Uh, and, you know, I think sometimes when I go to them, um, you know, it says in verse 5 that you should, God gives generously to all without finding fault. Um, sometimes I, I'm not like that, you know. My kids' motives maybe aren't pure. The desires of their heart aren't pure. Especially my boys, they're, they're kind of the worst about that. They're young, though. But when you go to God, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't find fault when you ask for wisdom. If you've asked for wisdom a hundred times, he doesn't find fault. He wants you to use the wisdom he gives you, though. He wants you to use that wisdom. He wants you to walk in that wisdom. And so I think a good practice for us, brothers and sisters, for you all, as you run your households, is you look at the trials that you're in, the trials that are coming, you ask God for wisdom, you go to the source, you go to the Father, you go to His Word, and you walk in it. You remain in it. You remain in Him. You walk on the path of wisdom, and He'll see you through. He'll see you through. It seems like a timely word, doesn't it? It seems like a word we need for the the days that we're facing. Uh, In verse 9, he goes on to another another topic of wisdom, I, I guess you could say. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Um, I think people are afraid that that might be happening in the next few months, that the rich will fade away. Uh, the riches will go away like flowers in the field, even as they're going about their business. Um, and Jesus' kingdom, he preaches an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. He says, believers who are uh, poor or in humble circumstances 
ought to take pride in their high position, or some versions say in their exaltation. Uh, the poor believers should take pride or glory in their exaltation. And the rich believers should, take, should glory in their humiliation or their, their humbling. And this is a hard thing to understand because I know James has read the Proverbs. And, for example, uh, Proverbs 13.22 says, uh, it talks about diligence and it talks about um, wealth and it talks about uh, riches coming to people. And um, like Proverbs 13.22, I'll just turn there and read it to you. This is something I think about often. It said a good person... My uh, podium's shrinking. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. Right? This is Proverbs. I, I, that's something I think about. That's something I'd like to be able to do. You know, I've got six kids, and if they have a bunch of kids, that's like a, you know, it might be difficult to leave an inheritance for my children's children. And obviously that can mean a spiritual inheritance or a spiritual legacy. Uh, but Proverbs talks about these things. But James is saying... Um, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. The rich should take pride in their humiliation. I think what when you come into Christian community, this is something I've thought of, and, and it seems to be true in the first century. Uh, and this is a hard thing to swallow because many of us are wealthy. You know, even if we don't feel it, we're in the, you know, the top 1% of people who've ever lived. You have a flushing toilet. You have air conditioning. You have a car. Uh, we're extremely blessed. But when you enter Christian community, when the poor enter Christian community among and enter in and become brothers and sisters, their position, we see this in the book of Acts, they're exalted. They are brought up. And when the rich enter Christian community, they humble themselves. That word humiliation has a negative connotation, but the, they're humbled. They humble themselves to make others rich. And, and part of the glory of the church is those two things happening simultaneously. I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. When you enter into the body of Christ, the poor are exalted. And the rich humble themselves. They may go down in status. If you come in and you're a, a wealthy person, you're a popular person, you, you're a person of status, and you come in and you follow Christ, uh, you know, in, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul tells us, associate with the lowly. James told him, remember the poor. And James also warns us about showing favoritism. In the world, we are tempted to seek out people who are at our status or above that we could be exalted, that we could be elevated. The upside-downness of the kingdom of God is that we associate with the lowly. We remember the poor. We are brothers and sisters. There isn't favoritism. There isn't the status that the world holds. I think that's a beautiful thing. And we are, that's glory. Uh, I wish I had a different, I had it pulled up on my phone, I'd read a different translation, but the poor is to glory and their exaltation, the richer to glory, and their humbling. That's, that's part of the glory of the church, is that we come together and we associate with one another. And we share resources. 
Now you can test yourself here. You can examine your circle. Look at the people that you associate with. Look at the people you have over to your house for dinner. Look at the people that you uh, meet with in your Bible studies. That are, you know, your social circle. The people that you post pictures of yourself with on, uh, you know, social media. Are you primarily concerned with associating with people who can elevate your status in the eyes of the world? Are you primarily concerned with uh, being with people, you know, who dress nice and look nice and drive nice cars and go to nice places and eat at nice restaurants and take nice vacations? Are those kind of the people you aspire to be seen with, be around and to be like? We need to test ourselves. Our priorities are askew if that defines us. James wants to remind us that wealth, worldly wealth, is fading away. It's fading away. It'll be destroyed. There's an eternal wealth. He knows the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures, or yeah, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's part of our accounting that we do. He tells us to count it all joy. We can store up for ourselves, especially in times of trial, especially when we humble ourselves and serve other people. We can store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. You might see your bank account. You might see your numbers. You might see your retirement. You might see your net worth shrink. You might see those numbers go down. But there's, there's a, an accounting in heaven that when you understand it correctly and when you see it rightly, it generates in you pure joy. That's what James is talking about. I told you James knows the Sermon on the Mount. We studied the Beatitudes. We're going to end our section in James here with a very Beatitude-like passage of James's own. Perhaps this is one Jesus spoke that wasn't written down. Maybe James came up with it on his own uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. You're blessed when you persevere under trial. You're blessed when you stand the test. You make it to the end. You receive a crown, the victor's crown. You receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I believe that our ability to stand is correlated to our love for the Lord. If we love other things more than we love Jesus, which is called idolatry, if we love wealth, we're not going to be able to stand when we see it challenged or diminished or evaporate. If we love status more than we love the Lord, we won't be able to stand when trials diminish our status, knock us down a peg in our station in life. When our commitment to the church uh, challenges that or puts that uh, on the line, our commitment to our, our fellow believers. If we love our lifestyle more than we love the Lord, we won't be able to stand when we see it challenged as we try to follow Jesus when he calls us to do hard things. But if we love the Lord, our love for the Lord will enable us to persevere 
to stand. And he will strengthen us. And when we look to the reward of being with him and knowing him deeper and walking with him and bringing him glory, we will be able to stand. So James is a test for us. It's a test for me. It's a test for me. I've been reflecting all week. I've been doing, I, I have a small business that is very gas dependent. I mean, I go to the, get my, I got guys that use a truck. I go to the truck and they, they have a, a card. And at the end of the week, I pinch this thick stack of receipts that are only from the gas station. You know, like I'm, this is, <laughs> like I'm looking ahead. I'm like, ah, this is kind of, I don't know what I'm going to do here, you know. And I have a lot of customers who are on a fixed income, you know, who, I, you know, I've raised rates um, or whatever. But it's like, I, this is going to be a challenge. It's challenging, perhaps challenging days. I'm not predicting anything. I'm not uh, prophesying anything. I just kind of look at what seems to be a little bit obvious. I'm not afraid. I'm actually, I, I've got joy today. I came in with joy. I've been studying James. I've got joy. I challenge you to do it. The Lord is going to see us through. And I believe he's going to answer our prayers. We prayed for revival. We prayed for a move of God. We prayed for people to come to the Lord. I think in times of trial, he's going to move. We prayed for our country. I think he's going to do things under trial. And he's going to reveal things and show things. But first, he's going to test us. He's going to test the church. He's going to test our faith because he wants us to be people that are steadfast. He doesn't want us to be unstable people. We've all known unstable people in the church, you know. We all have kind of known some unstable people. But we, uh, we ask for wisdom and then we walk in it. I feel like this is a good word for today. Um, so I want to pray. I want you to have hope. All right. I want to pray for you guys. And we're going to have communion. We're going to remember what the Lord Jesus has done. Uh, when James was leader of the church in Jerusalem, they suffered a, a severe famine. The, uh, Paul had to go, he went around to the Gentile churches and took up a collection. And they brought it back to Jerusalem because the church was going through hard times. But they stood the test. James was encouraging his believers pastorally. And he's encouraging us. I want you to be encouraged. And I want you to add it up to count it up, to see where your faith is. And if your faith is in the right place, you're going to look at the trials and you're going to have pure joy. And you're going to be able to endure. You're going to look at Jesus, look at the, his body that was broken, his blood that was shed. You're going to have love for him that exceeds your love for anything else in the world. And you're going to be able to stand. Jesus, I pray, uh, I pray that this is a message, uh, a sobering message, but a message of hope. I pray that uh, we could have joy, that we could be like the Proverbs 31 woman. We could laugh at the days to come, not cry, not cower, not, not shrink back in fear. We're not of those who shrink back, but we're of those who stand firm, those who persevere. And I pray that there would be glory for you as we follow you in these days. I pray that you would give us wisdom, God, to know how to move and to act to position ourselves, the, the path that we should take, the way that we should walk, Lord. We ask for wisdom, and we believe you're going to show it to us. We believe that we're going to see our way through and that there's going to be glory on the other side that exceeds the price that we have to pay to get through. Reorient, our, reorient us, God. Reset our priorities. Examine us, just like the psalmist said. 
Test us and know us. Search us and know us. See if there's any anything in us that's offensive to you. Pray for those who are struggling with fear that you would give them a revelation of who you are and what you can do, that they'd lift their eyes to you and have hope. Pray for those who are struggling with hard times that uh, we could be uh, part of the solution, God. But ultimately, they would come to know you as the giving God who gives.